Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. They began to lay their coats and jackets on the road. Just a, a spectacle to behold. As Jesus, riding on a donkey, surrounded by a crowd, began to enter into Jerusalem. They watched as people were scrambling to pull branches out of trees, to pull palm branches and and lay them down on the road. Children lining the streets, waving their victory branches and singing in verse 9. The crowds went out ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then all those people that were lining the streets that had not yet seen Jesus. All the people had been laying their coats on the ground and waving palm branches. They began to get a glimpse. And those people saw the king himself. They were able to look him in the face. He was on a donkey, which was a symbol of authority and peace. Everyone was looking and wondering in amazement, seeing this man. Verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred. Who is that? Who is that? Who is he? Who is that? Who's coming? What's happening? What's going on? What's happening? And it just spread across the city, asking, who is this? And the crowds answered loudly, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What a sight to behold. That was Palm Sunday. For us, next Sunday, hard to imagine. Easter's approaching so quickly. Next Sunday is also our Easter egg hunt. Uh, for our kids. Jesus entered Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey. But there was something else happening when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And Psalm 24 informs us about other things that were happening that we may not be quite aware of when reading the account in in, in Matthew chapter 24. While Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there were other things happening. This was Palm Sunday, the first day of the week. Passover for the Jews was just six days away on Saturday. While Jesus was entering into Jerusalem to make his triumphal entry, the priests were also busy back at the temple. And they were praising God and shouting praises to the King of Glory on the first day of the week. And the priests were reciting probably something like Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says... Lift up your heads, you ancient gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Why? That the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Well, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors. That the King of glory may come in. Who is he? this King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He's the King of glory. 
the people in the streets and the priests in the temple were asking the same question as Jesus was coming. Who is this that's coming? Who is this king? The people that were shouting the same anthem in Psalm 24 were shouting and asking the same questions as a stir went across the city asking, who is this king? And the people said in Matthew 21 that this king is Jesus. The priest said from the temple that it was Lord Almighty. Well, it turns out they were both right. It was Jesus the king entering into Jerusalem, and it was the king of glory because Jesus is the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. And Psalms 24 is the song really of a glorious king. The first praises of the uh, uh, happen in verses 1 and 2 where praise God as creator. And the second passage in verses 3 and 6 receives him as savior and the third welcomes him as king in verses 7 through 10. Now Psalm 24, if we look at it through the lens and the eyes of Matthew 21, and it's what we know from history with King David, Psalm 24 is about God making his royal entrance into the holy city of Jerusalem. And this literally happened while David was king. Now, most scholars and, and commentators believe that, that Psalm 24 was written when David first brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And you know what the Ark was. It was that sacred golden box that was commissioned by God to Moses in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, that would carry the Ten Commandments and that represented God's presence to His people. Wherever the people went, the Ark of the Covenant uh, went ahead of them. There was a, a short period of time when Israel was not in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And David reclaimed possession of that Ark and brought it back into Jerusalem. And it contained, the or the Ark of the Covenant, above it was a lid, and on the lid were two angels with their wings touching, and it was called the mercy seat. It was a place where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of, of sacrifices for the atonement of the sins of the people. A very important artifact. The psalm ends with God entering the holy city. The time in Israel's history when God made his royal entrance, according to David in Psalm 24, was when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. Now this psalm begins by praising God as the master of the universe. Verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or Psalm 25, I'm sorry. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon uh, the seas and established it upon the water. Let me flip there in my own Bible. Psalm 24, verse 1. These verses let us know and assert for us God's absolute ownership of everything that there is. Everything belongs to Him. The whole world belongs to Him. And this includes everything in it. All the rocks, all the trees, all the birds, all the bumblebees, all the people as well. According to Psalm 24, belong to God. And because they belong to God, God claims authority over everyone who lives in this world, including you and me and the people that you love. Now the earth belongs to God because He made it. It's His. He founded it. 
He established it. God is the creator, and because he is the creator, he is also the king of this earth. God's power in creation gives him the right to rule over everything that he's made. And he has that sovereign right. And because he holds that sovereign right, God today rules over the universe, even at this very moment, and he'll continue to rule over this universe. In fact, if you could examine closely everything in this universe, you would find that it's stamped with the inscription made by God. Everything that we know, that we see, that we understand has the inscription in it made by God. Because God's hand, God's design, God's touch is in everything that is. Now that fact alone, just knowing that God owns and made everything, that gives God the right to claim his kingly authority over everything in this world, including every single person. He has the right because even you have stamped upon you, made by God. Because all that is exists because God made it or God allowed it to be made. Now, if God is king of all creation, then obviously everything and everyone owes their allegiance to him. Listen to what David said in verses 3 through 6 in Psalm 24. He asked a question in Psalms 24, verse 3. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by what? Or swear by a false god. The, the person who has these four qualities will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And then David asks in, the, in this passage, who has permission to enter the royal court to have an audience with the king? And David gives four qualifiers. To come into God's presence, to come into the king's presence, that person must have both outward obedience and inward integrity. See, it matters who, God, who worships God. And it matters to God who worships Him. And this is what is meant by having clean hands and a pure heart. The second part of verse 4 tells us that it's forbidden to be an idolater. And it's forbidden to tell lies. That we must worship one would be God, in verse 4, and that we would always be speakers of truth. Now these verses are about loving God and loving one's neighbor, and the, the requirements that are laid out in Psalm 24 for entering God's presence haven't changed. They're still in effect today. God expects, today we're told in the New Testament that we, work, that we worship in spirit and in truth. That is not a new rule. It's just a clarification of what's in Psalm 24. God hasn't changed his mind about who he would prefer, who would, he would have worship him. When we come in to, to worship God in this room, in this place, God's expectations for you and for me have not changed. He expects that we have an obedient heart and that we be people of integrity. God still expects, even today. And so for us to think that we can flippantly run into worship is a misnomer on our part. We're making a mistake. Because God expects particular people 
to worship in a particular way and have prepared themselves specifically that we would be people of obedience and people of integrity. And the only way to meet those requirements then is for us to be justified by faith, just if we'd never sinned. Now, for you and for me, we cannot in our own strength become people of integrity, and we cannot become people of absolute obedience in and of ourselves. We need assistance. That assistance comes by the filling and the indwelling and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. The only way to receive the Holy Spirit is to accept Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, the theological word for that is justified. Justified never sinned. You're made clean and pure and white in God's sight. And it means believing in the God who saves and trusting in, the G, in, the, in Jesus who was the sacrifice for our sins. And that's the twofold response. That we trust God and that we trust Jesus. Now, David is asserting in Psalm 24 that God's rule is over all of creation. He's explained who has the right to enter his royal presence. And then he tells us that the king, of, uh, the king comes into his glory. And he says to throw open the gates, to open wide the everlasting portals so that the king of glory might enter. The main point of Psalm 24 is that the Lord of all creation is the king of glory. Now this was revealed when the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem. But it's revealed in a more magnificent way when Jesus made his royal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is for us next Sunday. But even in that celebration of Jesus entering into Jerusalem to, as the victorious and rightful king, there was still a celebration that is in anticipation even as he's entering. Because a few days later, Jesus is going to be ascended back into heaven at a grander celebration. After his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is greeted by Mary Magdalene in the garden. And Jesus gives Mary this warning in John's gospel in John chapter 20. Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me, which we can understand that she was moving toward Jesus to embrace him because she sees her Savior. She saw him die. She saw him bleed out. She saw him breathe his last breath. But here he is standing alive. And you can imagine her excitement that she would want to embrace her Savior. And so in John chapter 20, we can imagine that Mary is moving towards Jesus to embrace him. And Jesus says, oh, hold on. Don't hold on to me yet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Don't touch me yet. Not yet. He said, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, even though there was a great celebration as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, there's still this anticipation of his ascending to glory that at the time, only God knew about. And Jesus knew about through prophecy. But here, Jesus makes known to everyone that there's actually a grander, uh, magnificent thing that's going to happen that we need to anticipate, and that Jesus will be ascending back to the Father. And Jesus was speaking about His reunion 
with Father God and His entrance into glory. The name that the Father gave the Son uh, was the very name mentioned in Psalm 24. The name that God gave His Son is Lord. The name that we see attributed to the King in Psalm 24 is the name Lord. That's because Jesus Christ is the supreme God and the ruler over all. Now, according to, Je- to, to Hebrews, when Jesus returned to heaven, he sat down on a throne. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We find this. The sun is the radiance, the reflection, the glow, the wonder, the majesty of God's glory. If you want to read about God's glory, go read Psalm 7 and 8. It's about God's glory. I read it this morning. But he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Not only that, but the sun is the exact representation of God's being. And as such, he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the word in in Greek, by his powerful logos. In John chapter 1, verse 1, and John 1, 9, and 1 John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Here in Hebrews, different writer, we have the same word, the same, a writer using the same word, which is the word logos, Sustaining all things by his powerful Logos, or sustaining all things by his powerful Jesus. Because Jesus is the Word. Jesus is in the beginning. After he had provided, after Jesus, after the Logos, had provided purifications for sins, and he accomplished that on the cross, in his death, burial, and resurrection. After he had provided purifications for sins, not his sins, he didn't have any, but for the sins of humanity. After he had finished doing what he was going to do, he sat down. When Jesus had breathed his last breath, his final words were to the people gathered round, It is finished. What was finished? The payment, the purification for our sins. See how this all weaves together? This helps us understand then that the king of glory was the one on the cross. What a thought. The one seated upon the throne was the one hanging upon the cross. Now, our minds are finite. And to try to wrap our minds around the understanding that we worship one God, we're monotheists. If there's one God, there's not three gods. There's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three different gods. There's one God with three essences. Homoousius, the Latin word. But it's one God. There has never been two gods. Never has been. 
There has only ever been one God. And when you begin to think that there, around the idea and the understanding that there has only ever been one God, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? What Jesus was saying is, I'm turning my back on myself. I'm leaving myself to hang on this cross. I've got the power to take myself down. But because I want to pay for the sins and the, provide purification for all of humanity, I'm turning my back on myself so that I can accomplish a greater good, which is the redemption for humanity. That's some powerful theology there to think about. And when he had finished, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. After God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated himself in the heavenly realms. Now we can imagine Christ approaching the gates of heaven. Perhaps the angels saying, Lift up your heads, O ancient gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, he walked through the gates to enter his throne room. Because the only way you can be seated upon a throne is if you are not seated upon the throne. If you're already on the throne, then you can't go sit on it. Do you understand that's just a logical argument? If you're there, then you can't already be there. The angels watched Jesus walk through heaven. The people that had gone on before, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Ruth, all those who'd gone on before, watch the king, the thief on the cross. Watch Jesus walk in. Don't you know that that was a shouting celebration going on in heaven? As they watched the king walk in and sit down. My, what a scene. What a scene. On the cross and in the grave, Jesus had done battle with sin. He'd done battle with death. He'd done battle with Satan. And he had been strong and mighty in battle. And he broke the stranglehold of sin and gained victory over all the powers of hell in that event. He fought on earth, which was sin. He fought in Hades, which is death. And he fought in the spiritual realm, which is Satan. A threefold battle. Jesus fought in three days between his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. He fought all three battles. He fought the earthly battle, which was death brought by Adam and Eve. Won victory over that. He fought the battle of the powers of hell when he descended and took the keys. He tells us in, in Peter's account, in 1 Peter. And then when he rose victorious, 1 Corinthians 15 says, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In 1 Corinthians 15, that in that moment, Jesus conquered all spiritual powers that fell in Jeremiah 14. He conquered all 
3. Colossians 2.15 tells it like this. That Jesus disarmed. Now, think about this. The powers of Satan and the authorities of Satan are armed. Because you can only disarm someone if they have a weapon. If they don't have a weapon, you can't take a weapon from them. Makes sense, right? So for Jesus to disarm the powers and the authorities, that means that he overpowered Satan. That means that Satan put up a fight. That means that the powers of hell, death, and darkness resisted Satan. Oh, isn't that what it says in John's, in the, in the, in John's letter? He says in John's letter, 1 John 1, 9, in, in, in 1 John 1, 6, that darkness tried to conquer the light, but it could not. It resisted. And in Colossians, it lets us know that their resistance was futile. Because Jesus took their weapons. He took their authority. That's why Paul tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation because they don't have any weapons against the child of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Satan fires his fiery darts at the child of God. But they're futile because you have a shield protecting you. They're worthless and useless against you. Why? Because Jesus disarmed them. Not only that, he made fun of them. The way you make a, he says it this way, he said, made a public spectacle of them. The way you make a public spectacle of someone or something is that you hold it up for all to see and then make fun of them. You have, make sport of them. When Jesus walked around for those 40 days after his death, after his resurrection, Jesus was making a public spectacle of death, hell, and the grave. He was walking around saying, without ever saying it, just by his fact that he was visible and could be seen and later touched. We know that Thomas, doubting Thomas, called Didymus, does touch him. Jesus says, touch my hands, touch my side. And so we know that, that Thomas does get to touch him, physically touch him. That something transpired there. And in that, in that, when that happened, he made a public spectacle of the powers and the authorities of Satan. How? The end of the verse. By triumphing over them by the cross. Now, when Christ entered heaven, the angels, all those who had gone on before, knew that. And I'm sure that heaven erupted in celebration. As a conquering hero, Jesus has the right to enter the holy city as the king of glory. And Jesus finished the work of our salvation on a God-forsaken cross. And we know that the protection and provision of God wasn't there because Jesus asked the question, God, where are you? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus entered the glories of heaven where he was welcomed back to the place and the spot that he belonged. It was his throne. Now, there's one final place for Jesus to make his royal entrance. 
He's not finished yet. He accomplished salvation upon this earth. He entered back into heaven. But believe it or not, there's still one more place where Jesus has to be invited and allowed to enter. And that's your very own heart. Jesus will not force His way in. He won't tear open the door. But He has purchased the key that would open the door to your heart. Now it's important to understand that not everyone who sings God's praises receives Him as King. In Matthew 7, 7 is one of the, or 7.21 is one of the scariest verses for me in the whole Bible. It says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What that means is, not everyone who pretends to be saved really is saved. There is a false sense of security. Well, because I walk down the aisle, or because I go to church, or serve on a, on, in some capacity, as some kind of minister in the church, or because I give to the Billy Graham Crusader, or whatever it is that you do. Those things don't save you. And if you have not had an authentic salvation experience asking Jesus into your heart, the day is going to come when Jesus is going to say to you, I'm sorry, but I never knew you. You just pretended. You fooled your spouse. You fooled your children. But you didn't fool me. Depart from me. You're a worker of iniquity into eternal damnation. Folks, this is serious business. You've got to invite him in. Palm Sunday is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. On that Sunday at the beginning of the week, while the priests were singing, literally the whole city was welcoming Jesus in as king. Here's the coming king. I mean, literally the whole city, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people shouting, here's the king. However, by the end of the week, the same people were shouting, there's my king. By the end of the week, they were saying, he's not my king, go ahead and kill him. Matter of fact, don't just kill him, torture him till he dies. Torture him with the worst way you can torture him. He's so much not my king, I want you to torture him to death because he's not my king. And so that's what they do. Jesus is literally tortured to death. Tortured to death. Now it's not enough to simply say that Jesus is the king of glory. It's not enough to say that he's the king of the universe and king of the world. You must enthrone him as king of your heart. You have to extend the invitation. And it's got to be authentic. And if it hasn't been authentic, then it's not real. If you're not a Christian, Jesus stands outside the gates of your heart. Open them up. If you're not saved, won't you be? We're going to sing a hymn invitation. As Jacqueline and our instrumentalists come, I invite you to stand with me. If there's a spiritual decision that you need to make, I invite you to come here. I'll be glad to pray with you. I won't embarrass you. Let's stand together.